Welcome to Capital Conversations, the ERLC's podcast from Washington, D.C., where we help Christians imagine a new way to engage in the public square. I'm your host, Chelsea Soblick. Our conversations cover the policy debates and news shaping our world as we aim to connect our Christian theological motivations to political engagement in Washington. My hope for this podcast is that these conversations would foster a new way for Christians to engage in the public square. Welcome back to Capital Conversations. This week, we have David Jimenez from Prison Fellowship to discuss Second Chance Month. April is Second Chance Month, and we are going to dive into what that means, how URLC, Prison Fellowship, and others are uh, working for to advance uh, criminal justice reform and care for our incarcerated neighbor. David Jimenez serves as the manager of government affairs for Prison Fellowship's advocacy and public policy team, where he oversees federal and state legislative campaigns. His background is in public policy advocacy and institution building, most recently as a primary manager for the American Enterprise Institute's outreach to college students, faculty, and administrators. As an undergrad at Bowdoin College in Maine, David studied history and political theory. After graduating, he participated in the Hudson Institute's Political Studies Fellowship and was a Fulbright English teaching assistant in Romania. A proud alumnus of Prison Fellowship's internship program, he first became passionate about criminal justice reform while serving urban youth in New Jersey, where he saw up-close urgent need for restorative approaches to incarceration, law enforcement, and violence. He is passionate about theology, social policy, ethics, and culture. A Pittsburgh native, David lives in the Columbia Heights neighborhood of Washington, D.C. David, welcome to Capital Conversations. Thank you. So glad to be here. Well, I am so delighted that you're here. Uh, we have worked together for a while on, on the issues we're going to talk about, so I'm just delighted um, that you're here. But before we dive into the work of Prison uh, Fellowship and Second Chance Month and, and all of that, I'd love to hear how you first came into this work of prison ministry and advocating for criminal justice reform. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for having me. I would note that this is my first podcast, so really do appreciate the Easter and Lenten grace that I'm sure your listeners will provide for me. So my experience and interest in criminal justice reform really began in a gap year that I completed after high school and before college in Camden, New Jersey with Urban Promise, which is a network of Christian youth ministry that provides summer programming, after-school opportunities, parochial schools, and even outdoor wildlife education for young people grades K through 12 in Camden. Camden, after World War II, was often seen as kind of a great industrial powerhouse, Mm -hmm. the shining example of what it meant to achieve a middle-class status through a decent blue-collar job. But over the course of several decades between deindustrialization, automation, globalization, race riots, crack epidemics, decline of urban governance— Camden is now ranked consistently as one of the most violent, poorest cities in the United States. Mm. So my day-to-day in that gap year ranged from mornings focused on spiritual formation with other interns to actually organizing this after-school opportunity in the afternoon, and then finally concluding the evening with informal mentoring and tutoring provided mainly to high school students. So this was just a transformative experience in a lot of ways. 
I definitely had somewhat of a privileged childhood. So just learning basics like how to boil pasta, living in a community living, uh, intentional mm-hmm. living community, having the chance to support and mentor young people who just inspired me with their own resilience, courage, fortitude, and optimism in really challenging neighborhood, family, and school situations. Good experiences of just being disoriented and feeling a bit isolated in terms of coming to this experience as someone who got to travel abroad a lot, had parents who went to Ivy League schools, and had a four-year college degree very much in the cultural milieu in which I grew up. And then finally, just kind of escaping, and, and I reflect on this a lot, just the experience we often have up until we're 25 of just only being around people who are more or less our age. And having this year where on the one hand, I'm getting to mentor people who are younger than me and then being mentored in turn by folks who are consistently older than me. And through that experience, I I really started to develop a heart for criminal justice in a very fundamental way. So on the one hand, just directly seeing with in the community I was in the punitiveness of the justice system that people Mm -hmm. often experienced, specifically in the lengthy sentences that often separated fathers from their families or the harassment by law enforcement that many of the staff at Urban Promise often experienced. Although I would note, since the time I served in Camden, that the police department has actually reformed quite significantly and is now regarded as one of the best models of community policing and community engagement in the entire country. And then at the same time, this paradox of for all that punitiveness, public safety wasn't being delivered. I had young people who I worked with who had to walk through an open-air drug market in order to pick up their after-school snack. I follow a lot of the young people I worked with on Facebook today, and pretty much every two to three weeks, I can expect a Facebook post about a cousin, friend, or nephew who was shot and Mm -hmm. killed. I had experiences ourselves living in this community of having to wait 30, 45 minutes for a police officer to finally show up following an incident of burglary. So seeing that paradox of the one hand, an overly punitive, imbalanced criminal justice system, and then at the same time, the basic public good of public safety not actually being delivered for these communities. David, thank you so much for sharing. That's absolutely fascinating. And I have a million more questions about that. <laughs> but but my next question is, what role did faith play in, in bringing you to that work mm. in New Jersey and now to your work at Prison Fellowship? Sure. So I would say the faith formation experience that led me to keep on this path of criminal justice reform was actually taking a good number of courses on Russian literature in college. Huh. So I attended a very secular college in uh, the Northeast, Bowdoin College, Go Polar Bears, best mascot in the country, uh, hands down. And while it was a wonderful experience, there were just frankly very few Christian faculty and peers I could turn to. But in spite of that, I really had a, a powerful theological and intellectual experience through a seminar I took on Dostoevsky. And in any Dostoevsky novel you read, there's going to be some kind of crime or murder that takes place. But in the same token, there's also going to be his Eastern Orthodox Christian message of redemption, of renewal, of reconciliation, always shining through. So in short, I think that faith formation through literature really drew me to the criminal justice reform space, where on the one hand, you have these foundational moral questions of redemption, of human brokenness, of sin, and of renewal, coupled alongside these really technical, complex, interesting public policy questions as well. That is not the answer I was (laughs) expecting, but I I love that. Before we get into Second Chance Month, we're in April, Second Chance Month. Tell us about your work at at Prison uh, Fellowship and what you all do, uh, your mission, all of that. Sure. So Prison Fellowship is the nation's largest Christian nonprofit serving prisoners, former prisoners, and their families, and a catalyst for faith-based approaches to crime and incarceration. We were founded in 1976 by the late Chuck Colson, who was a counsel in the Nixon administration who was implicated in the Watergate scandal. 
And before he served time in federal prison for a crime related to that scandal, he had a born-again encounter with the Christian faith Mm -hmm. and just really felt a deep desire and conviction to come alongside those he left behind. So inspired by his leadership and vision for our ministry, we now reach over 500,000 prisoners each year, trying to give them the skills, the community, the resources they need to confront the thinking that brought them to prison and to pursue good citizenship during and after their incarceration if they do ultimately come home. We do this through our Angel Tree program, where we support families during the Christmas season and year round who have a parent behind bars and a child in the community. We offer the Prison Fellowship Academy, which is an intensive 500-hour character education program Mm -hmm. offered in over 100 facilities in 40 states that really guides participants in a journey from negative, destructive cycles of thinking and behavior to core foundations of good discipleship and good citizenship. And finally, our warden exchange, where we introduce wardens and associate wardens to the latest research and best practices on how they can make their prisons more safe, transformative, rehabilitative, and constructive. So overwhelming majority of our staff are actually in the trenches doing that work in communities. We're really proud that I think roughly one in four prison fellowship staff have served time behind bars. So we don't just talk the talk about promoting a culture of second chances. We try to manifest it Mm -hmm. in our own hiring and staff decisions. And then we have a team of over 10 who try to connect that direct work with a Christian worldview to offer faith-based approaches Mm -hmm. to criminal justice policy and doing that work both through our own direct lobbying, but even more importantly, equipping the church at large to join us in that effort. My first introduction to Prison Fellowship was actually the Angel Trees. Oh, really? Yeah. Growing up, we had a a large one in the uh, lobby of our our church, and that was my first introduction. That's awesome. I've noticed when I'm on the Hill, when I'm talking to older staff and I introduce Prison Fellowship, they're familiar with Chuck Colson and Born Again. And then when I talk to the younger staff, often they've had this encounter with Prison Fellowship Mm -hmm. via the Angel Tree opportunity. Well, I love it. And it's such a great great ministry. Um, But we are recording this show in April. um, And since 2017, April has been recognized as Second Chance Month. Can you tell us a little bit more about what Second Chance Month is and why it's important for Christians and churches um, to remember prisoners in this way? Absolutely. So through Second Chance Month, we work with over 700 partners and organizations ranging from the ACLU and the Heritage Foundation to achieve and work towards two goals. One is just to really celebrate the dignity and potential and gifts of the one in three American adults who have a criminal record and who have served their time, and also to highlight the barriers they face, whether it's the social stigma of having a criminal record or the challenges they face in navigating over 44,000 barriers to education, employment, housing, and other opportunities to become good stewards of their communities. It's no coincidence that we celebrate Second Chance Month in the Easter season consistently. They often overlap. Mm -hmm. And the goal there is just to remind believers that just as they've all received the greatest second chance of all through Christ's sacrifice, that they in turn should offer a second chance and provide avenues to redemption to individuals who have served their time. And the goal of Second Chance Month is really not to advance a comprehensive or shared or unified policy agenda. It's really to do that cultural work to set the groundwork for um, an atmosphere where we offer hope and opportunity for men and women who have paid their debt to society. There's a couple core ways we do that. We equip pastors to organize Second Chance Sundays at their church to really inspire their congregations to step up and serve their neighbors who have a criminal record. We encourage and support folks who organize Second Chance prayer walks, film screenings, 5Ks, other events in their communities. 
We also organize virtual events. And then finally, we uh, partner with folks in the community to encourage both the president as well as state governors to issue second chance month proclamations to celebrate and lift up this work. And so we've been grateful that both President Trump and President Biden have each issued their respective second chance month proclamations. We have been grateful for that as well. Uh, Circling back to something you said, you said one in three Mm -hmm. Americans have a criminal record. Yes, one in three American adults. So can you unpack that a little bit? What does that mean? Is that a driving ticket? What does that look like? No, it can be very wide ranging. So it would include individuals who've had an arrest, a traffic citation, a prison conviction and jail conviction. And one thing we consistently try to do in Second Chance Month is, on the one hand, encourage folks to reflect on and consider the unique gifts as well as challenges facing individuals who have served time in prison or jail in a specific sentence, but also just to remind folks of the much wider net of individuals, their neighbors, siblings, cousins, and so on, who have had a less direct engagement with the criminal justice system, ranging from a citation, experience of probation, or simply an arrest that was followed by dismissal, and what the impact of those less significant engagements with the justice system can actually be. I think for pastors listening, that statistic uh, should be extraordinarily eye-opening for them to know that sitting in their pews are, are, like you said, one in three Americans, Mm -hmm. um, but also people who, you know, family members might have had a touch with the criminal justice system. So in 2018, President Trump signed um, into law the First Step Act. Um, And then in 2020, um, and the past couple years, we've seen— unrest throughout throughout our country with the killing of George Floyd mm-hmm. and many other um, African-Americans. And in that, we've heard renewed calls for additional criminal justice reform. Can you kind of give us an overview of the reforms that have happened um, and kind of where we are on this issue? Absolutely. Well, look, the, the killing of George Floyd, I think, prompted so many Americans, including people of faith and staff of Prison Fellowship, to really reflect more critically and soberly than ever about this question of race and justice. And I'm hopeful that uh, that work is continuing and will continue to grow even as we all navigate many of the theological and political fault lines that have, um, you know, sadly deepened since that time. At Prison Fellowship, we know that the flaws in our justice system, ranging from a lack of proportionate punishment to barriers in reentry to experiences of ineffective or counterproductive policing, those flaws impact all Americans and all American communities. But at the same time, we also need to recognize that those failures uniquely impact communities of color. And that's measured when you look at differences by race in numerous criminal justice statistics, ranging from arrests, traffic stops, to length of sentence, or time behind bars. And we know that the causes of those disparities are complex. They certainly reflect specific cases of racism and individual bias, but they also reflect larger upstream forces related to housing, education, culture, and the history of our nation. And look, there's certainly no silver bullet to correct those complexities given the nature of our criminal justice system. We do think good criminal justice policy can help us correct and overcome at least, you know, some of those very clear sources of injustice and racial disparities. And so from our vantage point, you know, we really do think that backdrop of stark racial imbalances needs to convict the American church to step up and inspire us to double our efforts to seek out a justice system that is truly proportional and restorative. Since that summer, we've seen, you know, immense efforts and good faith negotiations here on Capitol Hill at the member level and staff level on a federal police reform package with really critical leadership being shown by Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey, and key law enforcement and civil rights stakeholders. 
Unfortunately, we haven't seen a comprehensive deal emerge, and it does look um, kind of on the horizon for now. And there are just really some immense differences to work out on issues like qualified immunity, no-knock warrants, use of force, and how we best structure federal funding for state and local law enforcement. Now, with that said, we have seen states step up. So between May and December 2020, according to the National Conference of State Legislatures, 24 states passed significant police reform with packages being passed, for instance, in states like Iowa, Tennessee, and Virginia. And look, in some ways, a state-first approach to police reform is, is perfectly reasonable. Given our nation's constitutional structure, our federalist traditions, criminal justice and policing have largely remained and are state and local prerogatives. And First Step Act was only able to pass because we could point to over a decade of best practices mm -hmm. seen in states ranging from Texas to Utah. But even as a federal police reform package, I think a comprehensive one does look daunting at this time. We are seeing some exciting coalitions merge on particular issues in the space. So, for example, just last week, Senators Cornyn of Texas and Senator Whitehouse of Rhode Island have introduced a bill supported by prison fellowship, law enforcement, and mental health groups that would establish a very well-designed federal funding stream for local law enforcement training on de-escalation, alternatives mm -hmm. to use of force, crisis intervention, and community engagement. So we're really excited to see this bill emerge and are excited to support it as a way to give law enforcement the training they need to better serve and shepherd our communities. That is excellent. So you mentioned uh, one thing I want to ask about as well. Uh, you mentioned barriers to reentry. What does that look like practically for someone who's transitioning back to society? Absolutely. So I'll walk through one that we're really privileged to be working on in a number of legislative sessions this year in Virginia and Oklahoma and in the coming year in Texas, which relates to occupational licensing. This is a government-issued license that an individual often needs in order to pursue certain well-funded, gay-full job opportunities, ranging from HVAC and electrician to cosmetology. Currently nationwide, there's over 16,000 barriers to applicants who have a criminal record mm. who are seeking licensed employment. We certainly recognize that review of criminal records is an important responsibility of a licensing agency. That's an essential way for them to consider public safety and workplace risk. But oftentimes we've seen the licensing process barriers that fail to actually account for an individual's particular progress and rehabilitation, fail to directly make a connection between the profession in question mm. and the offense that someone has been convicted of, and fail to you know, meet high standards of transparency, fairness, and due process. And so what we're really trying to advocate for is a licensing structure where decisions are made on clear and articulate public safety risk and always try to account and honor the effort someone has made at life change during their incarceration and sentence and after they've returned to the community. So we're really excited for the momentum we're seeing on licensing reform, not just in the states we're working, but around the country. And specifically, the ways in which this really challenging, difficult economic climate is encouraging mm -hmm. businesses and policymakers to really ensure that no talent, including that of folks who have served their time, is left on the sidelines of our economy. I think that strikes a really good balance. Um, so, David, as we think about our criminal justice system broadly, mm -hmm. what are some of the, the biggest challenges? And I know that's a <laughs> a very large question, uh, but what are some of the biggest biggest challenges no, that that's we're facing a, right now? That's a meta question and an important question. I would say the biggest challenge we're facing is helping folks to think critically about this distinction between violent and nonviolent crimes mm. and when we make that distinction in appropriate policy context. That distinction 
has emerged and makes sense for a reason. It's an acknowledgement that violent crime has unique costs for victims, for families, for communities. And those costs are something we have to take all the more seriously as so many cities in our nation really tackle rising deadly violence experienced and seen since 2020. And in many aspects of our criminal justice system, that distinction makes sense. It's certainly appropriate when a judge is tasked to impose a fair, proportional, and just sentence at the beginning of the process. And in some parts of the reentry space, it makes sense. So for example, an individual convicted of a domestic violence offense, a serious one, almost certainly should experience a lifelong or an extensive ban on access to a firearm. But in other aspects of our criminal justice system, I think that distinction can actually undermine a goal we all share, whether we're a pastor, a civil rights activist, a sheriff, or a police officer, which is safe communities where cycles of crime, addiction, and unemployment and recidivism are replaced by cycles of renewal, restoration, and good citizenship. I'll give two examples of where I see this standing out. We often see in regards to opportunities for government housing, public housing, or occupational licensing or work, that there might be automatic, permanent, or sweeping bans on access to those opportunities for individuals who have been convicted of a violent and more serious crime without any specific investigation of who this person is, what's their criminal history, what is their present public safety risk, what pursuit of life change have they pursued while in prison or after release that needs to be acknowledged in this process. And those type of sweeping barriers don't serve public safety and can make the reentry process more difficult for folks who really have and want to get back on their feet and serve their neighbors and families. Second, public safety is best served where we have constructive prison cultures. All of us benefit from an environment where people in prison confront the history and failings that brought them there, mm. develop new habits and ways of thinking, and participate in robust programming ranging from cognitive behavioral therapy and job training to faith-based programming or drug treatment. In most jurisdictions, we often have tools like earn time credits or parole, where we have the incentive for early release as a way to encourage people to pursue those offerings and behave well and develop their character behind bars. But sadly, there's often laws that exist or are being introduced that would deny those release incentives for individuals convicted of more serious crimes mm. as part of this focus on the violent versus nonviolent distinction. But I think what those proposals or laws, while well-intentioned, fail to recognize is, is that, look, vast majority of individuals convicted of more serious violent crimes, they have an end date to their sentence. They are ultimately coming home. Mm -hmm. And why would we want to remove the incentives for them to use their time behind bars well and to become the type of reliable good neighbors and citizens that we want to be able to trust in when they ultimately return to our communities. So I think there's still a lot of work ahead to think better about that distinction. We're not arguing for its abolition by any means, but to look and use it critically. I think that's gonna be a key goal of the reform community in the next decade. And I really do think believers and Christians, given our anthropology of uh, human redemption, renewal and restoration, have a unique voice to that conversation. That is so helpful. And what is very clear in this issue is how complex it is and that there's no, quick and easy fix. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, groups like Prison Fellowship have worked in these spaces for decades. And um, I'm so grateful you guys are such a strong partner of ERLC and that you guys think so critically and well about these issues. And I hope our listeners walk away feeling some of the complexity of these issues because it's humans are complex, communities are complex. Um, I think I've shared this before uh, with you offline, but I have done a lot of work in the child welfare mm. space and another space that is just incredibly complex. And, and these two spaces overlap quite a bit, but 
very complex and each community looks different. You and I are recording in the heart of Washington, D.C. right now, and that's going to look different than, you know, maybe a more rural community and things like that. So for pastors, I hope that they're able to kind of grasp some of the complexities and um, and tap into Prison Fellowship's work and, and great resources on these issues. Um, so as we are kind of looking to this current moment and ongoing efforts um, to reform our prison and criminal justice systems um, that would promote uh, the biblical ideas of justice, proportionality, human dignity without compromising public uh, safety, what are some of the, the ongoing efforts that are being made right now? Well, I'll start with a piece of legislation that we've had the privilege of partnering on and working with you all together, and that is the EQUAL Act, led by Senators Portman and Booker in the Senate, and Representatives Armstrong, Jeffries, and Bacon and Bobby Scott in the House. This bill, the EQUAL Act, is full title is Eliminating a Quantifiably Unjust Application of the Law. And this bill relates to how the federal code treats powder cocaine and crack cocaine crimes. So I'll start with kind of a Breaking Bad pharmacology breakdown. One of the best shows ever. <laughs> the golden, so age of, golden age of TV. <laughs> yes. So crack cocaine and powder cocaine are chemically nearly identical. They have similar physical and psychoactive effects. The main difference being principal method of use. So crack cocaine is more likely to be smoked, whereas powder cocaine is more likely to be snorted or to a much lesser extent injected. In 1986, Congress began to treat these really comparable substances quite differently. So under that 1986 law, five grams of crack cocaine triggered the same mandatory minimum as 500 grams of powder cocaine. So this is where the so-called 100 to 1 disparity comes from in thinking about this issue. Not that the penalty was 100 times more severe, but rather that two similar substances triggered vastly different federal mandatory minimums. At the time that law was passed in 1986, and to a lesser extent still today, crack cocaine was more likely to be used in low-income communities mm. and specifically more likely to be used in communities of color. And so as a result, this disparity is one source of the rising incarceration we saw in Black communities throughout the 1990s and within the federal prison system without actually really having any tangible benefits for public safety or for deterring and reducing drug abuse and drug trafficking. In 2010, Congress reduced the disparity from 100 to 1 to 18 to 1, with members who were historically not always aligned with us on criminal justice reform, like Senator Jeff Sessions of Alabama, actually playing a very critical role mm -hmm. in moving that bill along. And then in 2018, with the First Step Act, Congress allowed for individualized review, sentencing review, of folks who are sentenced under the 100 to 1 ratio. Mm. So all the Equal Act does, a very simple, I think, one or two-page bill, simply requires that the same amounts of crack cocaine and powder cocaine trigger the same federal penalties and allows for individualized, careful sentencing review of folks who were punished in crack cocaine cases under the prior structure. Our case for it really comes down to three things. One is just our commitment to biblical values of fairness and consistency. We don't think this disparity, while much improved, reflects those values. And as a result, it really undermines the community trust in law enforcement that is essential for tackling violent crime, facilitating law enforcement partnerships, really developing the creative crime control strategies we need across our nation, and especially in vulnerable communities. Second is our commitment to racial justice. This is a disparity in policy that, while well-intentioned at the time it was passed, and while an understandable response to real challenges in the 1980s, failed to keep communities safe, failed to serve all Americans, 
and specifically increased incarceration among Black Americans with downstream effects on families and communities. And so we see this legislation, while no means is a silver bullet to addressing enormous racial imbalances from arrest to reentry, as a really valuable step in correcting at least one source of disparities in our justice system. And finally, public safety. This piece of legislation has the support of the National District Attorneys Association, the Major City Chiefs Association. Over 40 states already treat these drugs the same as they work to keep communities mm. safe and drug-free. And we also even think that by carefully reducing over-incarceration in the federal prison system, we can find the savings we need to invest in community policing, prison programming, violence reduction strategies, all of those long-term interventions to keep communities safe. So this piece of legislation actually passed the House 361 to 66 back in September. That's pretty great. Two-thirds of Republicans voted for the bill. One in three Republicans who voted against the First Step Act who remain in Congress voted for the Equal Act. Huh. We now have um, 11 Republican co-sponsors, so the bill is essentially filibuster-proof, and we're now working as hard as we can with you all and with others to get this over finish line before the summer ends. And I'm really struck in this work, just the role of the church mm -hmm. in this advocacy. We're so privileged to work alongside you all, Catholic Charities USA, National Association of Evangelicals, Center for Public Justice, Catholic Prison Ministry Coalition, Catholic Mobilizing Network, and also for the way I've been able to see firsthand how our grassroots volunteers or the folks who are involved in our direct prison ministry to families and communities have been able to secure co-sponsorships of, of this bill through their own lobbying and through their own media appearances. Well, we are grateful to work alongside uh, you in these efforts. Um, so as we are closing, uh, you just mentioned the role of the faith community in some of these reforms. Um, what are some ways that the Christians and churches um, who want to get involved can serve those who are either currently in prison or reintegrating back into our communities? Wonderful question. And I so much enjoy the opportunity to work on public policy each day, but at the end of the day, the way we're going to change this country and our criminal justice system is through that individual work of mentoring, of accompaniment and encouragement. And none of that vital task can be done or achieved through any statute or law that I get to work on each day in my current role and position. So if one visits the Prison Fellowship website, you can find opportunities to learn about how to volunteer directly regarding in-prison programming if there's opportunities in your particular region or state, and also how to get involved in our Angel Tree opportunity to support families during the Christmas season and over time year-round. And also to provide resources about how to set up a re-entry or aftercare ministry independently in your church mm -hmm. with the guidance and direction that we provide. We also have Outrageous Justice, which is a six-week Bible study small group curriculum that really provides a group of folks and believers the resources and curriculum they need to really think about how can I approach crime and incarceration from a biblical perspective? How can I love my neighbor who's been involved in the justice system well? And how can I think about the public policy implications well about that theological vision and framework? For those who want to engage more deeply with Prison Fellowship and our advocacy work, we also have the Justice Ambassador Program, where we equip everyday Christians in the work to engage in lobbying, organize events in their community, appear on media, submit letters to the editor, really be catalysts for cultural and policy change on criminal justice. And finally, if you go to our website and check out our webpage on Second Chance Month, you can learn about the opportunities you have to plug into existing events or create your own about unlocking opportunities for our neighbors with a criminal record. Well, David, thank you so much for your work at Prison Fellowship and, and how you um, have helped us understand how we can love 
our neighbor better. Um, And thanks for joining us on Capital Conversations. Thanks so much for having me. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. If you enjoyed today's show, send a link to this podcast to a friend or family member in your community. Be sure to subscribe to Capital Conversations so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a rating and review to help others find the show. Resources from today's episode are available in the show notes and at erlc.com. And in addition to listening to Capital Conversations, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and culture. The ERLC podcast is our flagship show and airs every Friday. Lindsay and Brent give a rundown of what the ERLC has been working on that week, including updates on our work in Washington, D.C. Search for The Digital Public Square and The ERLC Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Capital Conversations is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted and produced by Chelsea Soblitz. Technical production is provided by Owens Productions. It is edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we look forward to being back together with you next time.